Open your Bibles to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, we continue our study in the books of providence, which could be said as Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. What I'm drawing on the board right here is a timeline of the world, beginning with Adam and Eve in 4,000 BC, the cross of our Lord at 30 AD, and today somewhere at 2023. If you look over that timeline covering 6,000 years, our story of Ezra begins at about 538 BC. This is the story that Ezra begins to tell. And Nehemiah happens at 445 BC. As best as we can tell from the dates of ancient history. Now I'm showing you this so that you will understand What is happening in these books? Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther take place in 100 years, between 500 and 400 BC, about 3,500 years after Adam, about 2,500 years ago. So basically, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are right in the middle of history. These three books deal with God's providence. How does God work his plans for his glory? With Ezra, we saw in 538 BC, the people of Israel were coming back from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And God turned the heart of what pagan king? Cyrus. The first one was Cyrus. We're going to get to Artaxerxes tonight. Cyrus was the first king. After him came Darius. God twisted Darius's heart. That's in the book of Ezra as well. After him, Ahasuerus. That's the king under Esther. God twists his heart. Artaxerxes. God twists his heart. God changes these kings one after another, for his own good purposes. Am I skipping one of these kings? I've got them listed right here. Or the Bible has them listed in Ezra chapter 4. Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes. Five times over four kings, God turns the hearts of these kings. The last one, Artaxerxes, God changes him two times. And as you'll remember, he begins... Artaxerxes begins his rule opposing the Jews. And then God turns his heart 180 degrees. So it's not as if, well, the king was already a good guy. No, this king had his heart 
set against the Jews. He had already written the law saying, do not let those people do their work. I'm against them. And then when God turns a king, it is nothing for God to take an emperor who is 100% against the Jews and change him around 180 degrees. God can do that. And the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther shows God does it as simply as you snap your fingers. It is not a hard thing, or as simply as I should say, as Colin falls asleep during good sermons. He can do it very easily. He can change the hearts of kings. That's what we're studying in this book. Now, Ezra is the beginning. They move back and they build what building? The temple. The temple is rebuilt during the ministry that Ezra records. Ezra is not alive for the beginning of it. It begins and Ezra is not there. He gets the documents and then he writes about it. In Ezra chapter 6, halfway through the book, now Ezra is alive. And he tells you about the things that happened during his life. Then he finishes his story and Nehemiah picks up his story. Ezra's book is largely ancient documents. We showed you about 10 of those ancient documents. Basically, Ezra gets the letter, the decree, the law, the journal. He collects them all and says... If I die and these get destroyed, that wouldn't be good. How about I make a book and I collect all of these documents and then people can read what was happening and how God was in control. And that's what Ezra's book is. It's a collection of Ezra who says, I've got all these documents. Why don't I put them together? Some of them are just packing lists or lists of people who travel. Some of them are laws. Some of them are letters from powerful kings. Ezra collects all those together, and that's his book. Nehemiah's book is a little bit different. It's largely Nehemiah's private journal. Nehemiah writes down, what did I do? What happened to me? What did I experience? What did I feel? And so tonight in Nehemiah chapter 4, we continue with Nehemiah's journal. Nehemiah chapter 4, when I first preached on this back in 2011, when Mana Nico and Papa Nico were just coming to the church and when Nico was still crying in the services. Back in 2011, I preached on this and I preached a message about a Christian work ethic. How to work like a Christian because work is mentioned eight times. Well, there's still a lot for us to learn about work. But I'm going to save the main point of the sermon until the very end and try to catch you like putting a hook in the mouth of a fish. Can we do that? I'm going to toss the bait out and the bait's going to sit there and I'll see if you'll bite and I can catch you with the hook on the main point of chapter four. We should work very hard, but that is not all this passage has. In fact, I think I missed something very important in 2011. Let me try to show it to you right now. At Nehemiah chapter 4, and let's begin right away in verse 1. It came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we built the wall, he was angry, wroth, very angry. And he took great indignation. Three different Hebrew words to tell us 
how angry this man is. He does not like the Jews. And he is very angry. So he comes and what does he do? What's the last verb in verse number one? He mocked them. This is anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a hatred of the Jewish people. Sem, from the Hebrew name Shem. Abraham had three sons, Shem, Ham. I'm sorry, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Thank you. That's why you need a good wife. She can shake her head when you make a mistake like that. Not Abraham. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem was the father, ultimately, of Abraham. And Abraham's children became the Jewish people. So today, Semitic comes from the name Shem, and it means having to do with the Jewish people. Semitic, S-E-M, from Shem. Now, if you say anti-Semitic, then you are opposed to the Jewish people. So Muslims and Islam is anti-Semitic. They do not like the Jewish people. Iran published a map of the world with all of the countries except one. Can you guess which country was not on that map? Israel. Israel. So um, Iran's goal and their vision of the world is that there would be no country of Israel. My friend, a Muslim friend whom I was speaking with and talking with for a number of months until he moved to Pretoria, he also told me that the world would be better if there were no Jewish people. Anti-Semitism. But it didn't start today or yesterday. It didn't start in 1870 or 1880 when they had a conference in Prussia to see if the Jews could build a homeland in Israel. It didn't start in 1948 when the United Nations or the League of Nations said, we're going to vote to allow the Jewish people to have a homeland in what they called Palestine. No, anti-Semitism did not begin in the last 150 years. It's here in chapter 4, verse 1. Why is it that Sanballat would mock and hate the Jews? The land was not being used. The Jews were coming back to territory that did not have anyone on it. They were building farms where it was barren bush. Why would you be bothered if this guy says, let me go out here where no one's living. Let me start my own farm. Let me raise my wife and children. What will bother you about that? Because the seed of the serpent despises the seed of the woman. Back in Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the serpent and said, your seed will hate the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. That seed of the woman, that child of the woman is Jesus. Notice it's the child of the woman hinting at the virgin birth. We didn't know about it, but just a hint back from Genesis 3 verse 15. Someday, a woman would have a child. And down through history, who is this going to be? Some people think when Genesis chapter 4, when Eve had Cain, she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Some people believe that Eve thought her first child was the Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. 
down through history, how many women had thought, oh, may God bring the Messiah. May it be my child. Mary was the one. And the reason God invented woman is to give his son a body so that there could be that child who could crush the head of the serpent. Why is it that they hate Israel? Because the Messiah will come through Israel. And if you've been reading the Psalms, you know, Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine foolishness? The kings of the earth set themselves against Jehovah, but not only against Jehovah. Who does it say in Psalm 2 verse 2? Against Jehovah and against the Lord's anointed one, his chosen king. A few verses later, it says, you are my son Today I have begotten you. And at the end of that psalm it says, Be wise, kings of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, because his wrath is quickly kindled. You'd better bow down and kiss the son. But what is Sanballat doing? He's not listening to Psalm 2. He's not listening to David. And he says, I hate those Jewish people. He's controlled by demons and Satan and evil. This is how the story begins, at least this section of it. Verse 2, he goes on to do other things. He talks. This is total opposition. He hates them. He mocks them. And then what does he talk about? Verse 2. He goes to talk to the army. He talks to the army. Now, if you have a New American Standard, it doesn't say the word army. Does it say nobleman? And what is the footnote? Army. Army. Army is probably the better translation. It's difficult to tell the exact translation of that Hebrew term. But the ESV, the King James, the New King James, and the NIV, all translated as army. What does Sanballat do? He mocks them. He makes jokes about them. He laughs at them. He hates them in his heart. But he goes further and he talks to powerful people to try to stir them up against the Jews. He might think to himself, I'm only one man. I could kill one or two or ten of them, but I can't kill them all, the thousands of them. So he says an army could do that, and he attempts to stir up an army. Look in verse number two, how he mocks them. Notice all the questions. What are these feeble Jews? He calls them weak. Will they fortify themselves? He calls them impotent having no strength. Will they sacrifice? Ah, these people, they're foolishly religious. They speculate. They worry about things that will never happen. And they toss around their hopes without any good confidence. Next question. Will they make an end in a day? Ah, they're childish. They can't even plan well. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish? which are burned, that reminds us there was nothing happening there until the Jews came back. It was a barren wasteland. Only the Jews had a love for that land. The other people didn't care about that land. It was barren. The same thing happened when the Jews in the late 1800s began to move back to the land that is now Israel. They purchased the land legally and they wrote over and over that the land was almost entirely swampland, overrun, over, uh, uh, not used, not planted. And they bought up land that the inhabitants near around or the ones who threatened them 
said, ah, there's no use in that land. These stupid Jews, what are they doing? And the Jews said, we will pay any price to get that land. They were going to rebuild it. Look in verse three, what else does he do? Tobiah the Ammonite, oh, he's gonna join them. It's Sanballat and now Tobiah. They join together and they say, ah, whatever they build, if a fox goes on it, he'll knock it down. They mock them. They laugh at them. They try to raise up an army against them. Verse number four shows that Nehemiah does not attack. Nehemiah does not gather an army. Nehemiah does what he's done the whole way through it. I encourage you to do this from the very beginning. Mark down every time they pray, but don't mark it with a P. You need to mark P for providence. Mark pray, but don't mark PR for prayer because PR stands for providence. You have to mark the whole word out, P-R-A-Y, or what I used to do in my Bible, arrow up, arrow down. You're talking to God and he's answering you. Whatever you want, mark down the prayers in this book. They're all through here. Look in verse four. His prayer is remarkable. Hear, O our God, we are despised. Turn their reproach upon their own head. Give them for a prey in the land of captivity. Verse five, do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Let's pause here in verses four and five and notice, why does he pray that they would not be forgiven? What is his thought? Because their sin was of such a serious nature. Do not let them be forgiven because the nature of this sin. I believe what's happening with these imprecatory prayers is this. Do not let them be forgiven as long as they go on without repentance. Those words, as long as they go on without repentance, are what I think would be added in from my study of the New Testament. For example, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Can God forgive those people who do not know what they are doing? Can God forgive anyone? He can only forgive those who repent and put their faith in his son. God is not free to forgive everyone. Don't ever think that. If God were free to forgive everyone, then why doesn't he do it? Why is Judas right now in hell if God were free to forgive everyone? He's not free. He is bound by his own character. And his character said, the soul that sins, it must die. So when a soul sins, God is not free to say, well, you sinned, but come into heaven. That's the Islamic God. That's Allah. Allah can say, the soul that sins will die, and then turn around and say, well, okay, you can come in anyway. The Christian God says, the soul that sins will die. They sinned, they die. The only exception is if God himself came down and took their guilt. Why must it be God? Because their guilt was infinite. Only an infinite being can take infinite guilt. That's why hell must be for eternity. Judas must stay in hell for eternity because his guilt is eternal. But Christ, who was God, had what kind of being? An eternal being. 
So he can come and take your guilt, which is eternal. He can take eternal guilt, put it on his own eternal being, and suffer eternal wrath in an eternal being for eternal guilt. And then you still aren't saved. You're going to have to hide in him. So when we say, can God forgive everyone? The answer is clearly no. He can only forgive the people who hide in his son. He cannot forgive everyone. When he said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He was praying something that cannot happen unless his words meant this. Father, forgive them in such a way that you give them faith and repentance for they know not what they do. Did you hear those added words? Cameron said it nicely. Let's, let's hear the whole phrase there. Father, forgive them. Now here are the added words that we know, know must be added in. Oh, this is such an important point. Don't get distracted. I need you now. Here's the prayer of our Lord. Father, forgive them. Now here's the added words that we know must be added from the rest of the Bible. Father, forgive them in such a way that you give them the gift of faith in me and repentance from their sins, for they know not what they do. The same thing is true with Nehemiah's prayer. Oh God, do not forgive them. Part that's not included, but what we know from other verses. Unless, of course, these people repent and fall on their faces and beg you for forgiveness and hide in you and offer sacrifices and find your law and kiss your son. Ah, those are the exceptions. You say, but that's not in the text. It doesn't have to be because, number one, these people weren't going to turn. And because, number two, these words are commonly used to wake up sinners. Let's say you're here tonight and you don't know that you were born again. If I say to you, there's no hope for you. You are lost, lost, lost. Are those true words? They're true words unless you turn from your sins. But if I add in there, unless you turn from your sins, it takes the edge off. If I just say, is your name in the book of life? You are lost, lost, lost. Let those words sink in. And if you are going to be woken up, you will say, I'm lost. I cannot live in this state. Oh God, hear me. I know you said I was lost. I know you didn't list an exception, but please, is there not an exception for me? And then you will find out, yes, yes, yes. The Bible's a big book and it has many, many exceptions for sinners who come that way. Nehemiah is praying, oh God, do not forgive their sins as long as they stand in their sins. Verse number six. So we built the wall. All the wall was joined together to the half of it because the people had a mind to work. They loved to work. Let's pause here and look at some of their work. Chapter four, verse six. They worked with their whole heart. Chapter four, verse 21. How did they work? So we labored in the work and half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning until the stars appeared. How many hours is that? 12, 14 hours? These guys were working long days. And remember, we discussed this last week. They had their own jobs. 
They were already doing all these other jobs. They were merchants. They were diamond and goldsmiths. They were politicians. They were priests. Yeah, they were coming from their work to do this work as an extra add-on. And they worked 12 to 14 hour days. Look at verse 16. It came to pass from, the time for, from that time forth, half of my servants wrought in the work and the other half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, the habergens, the rulers, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. Half of the people worked, half of them stand there with weapons, which is also a kind of work. They were security guards. Which one would you rather do? If you're working with the bricks, you get tired, you cut your finger. So you'd rather do the security guard, right? Because all you do is stand there. Really? But if you're the security guard, you're at risk of dying. Which one would you like to do? (laughs) Your risk of dying is high. But at least if you got to take that risk, you get to sit down in the shade. Which job would you take? It was work. Look at verse 18. For the builders, everyone had his sword on his side. And so he built. The one that sounded the trumpet was right by me. They were working everywhere. Look at verse 23. Ladies, does this just make you, does this just uh, uh, hurt you women to read verse 23? So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes. Except if we ever had to wash them. And you know how men wash their clothes. Once a month, whether they need it or not. (laughs) These guys are devoted to the work. Look at the way they're giving themselves to this work in the face of these enemies. And the enemies come back. Look at verse 7. It came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, that the breaches were being stopped, they were very angry. Wait a minute. We've, seen, we've heard that song before. Where were they angry before? Chapter 4, verse Verse one, three words to tell us how angry. And again, they're very angry. Some people are just angry people and they need to get over it. They need to conquer that sin by the power of God. These people will get very angry. Verse number eight. So what did they do with their anger? They conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem to hinder it. These Jews were working very hard in the midst of risk. It was stressful. There were enemies. They were exhausted. They were working long days. They were unskilled labor. Remember from chapter three, who it was that was working? The priests. Do you think the priests are used to building brick walls? It was the goldsmiths. The goldsmith, he comes out, he's got a little bit of a belly on him. Well, I can try to push the wheelbarrow. Oh, this is heavy. Oh, you do this all the time. <laughs> That's hard work. They're not used to it. Can you imagine a guy who's a goldsmith? He's out there. He puts the brick in. So he's, hey, man, make that thing straight. It is straight. It's not straight. Looks like a dog's back leg. Put that thing straight. Can you imagine the kind of conversations they had? They're working like this and fighting and trying to do the job. And then the guy gets saying, he says, I've never done this before. I'm just trying, man. We're all working at this together. 
No, they didn't have those fights because the people had a mind to work. But you can be sure it was a difficult job. It was a difficult job where they had to go back and correct errors and fix problems that came up as they came up. So what do we see in this chapter? We see the Jews working very hard, arming themselves, prepared to fight to the death if need be. They were opposed by their enemies and through it all, they persevere. Every time there's a difficulty, they go on in prayer. I didn't mention in verse 9, there's another prayer. They keep moving on. And that is the story. But that's not the lesson that I want to bring out to you. The lesson is in that story. You can honestly go to this passage and show that this passage has a Christian work ethic. You can bring out from this passage that work is effort made to accomplish a task, that sinners can work at their sinning, athletes can work when they play, that work is good, that God is the first worker in Genesis chapter 1. You can bring out the idea that Adam had a job before sin, Genesis 1.25, I'm sorry, 2.15. You can bring out the fact that all Christians are employed And whatever job you have when you become a Christian, you should not quit that job unless it's a sinful job. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, let him abide in the calling which he had when he was called to Christ. When you were called to Christ, if you had a job as a nurse, keep that job unless it's a sinful job. Work is a godly pursuit and we can bring out that lesson from this chapter. We can point to Christ And say, our Lord Jesus stayed up late and got up early. Mark chapter 1, verse 32 and 35. He stayed up late in the night, teaching and preaching and healing. Mark 1, 32 says, everyone in the town. How long do you think it would take to heal everyone in the town? It says he did it until late at night. Verse 35 says, the next morning, early in the morning, he got up and went to a quiet place to pray. So he stays up late. He gets up early. John 5 verse 17 says he finished all the work his father gave him to do. And many other areas uh, of, of the gospels show that our Lord Jesus Christ worked. Here's a quote that I've got from a man named Elton Trueblood. He writes, quote, not many areas of human behavior have been more radically affected by the Christian gospel than that of work. Wherever the gospel has been truly influential, the concept of the dignity of work shows itself. Now think about that. The Christian gospel changes the value that men place on women. Before the Christian gospel, every society in the world beat women. In every society, the men beat their women and the women hated and gossiped about their husbands. In every society of the women of the world, the children are out of control until the Christian gospel changes. Does it not change the family? But this author, this theologian says, the category of life most affected by the Christian gospel 
is work. When you become true Christians, you change the way you work. You work like Nehemiah. That is a good application. If you need to change and repent from working in a lazy way, boys, are you lazy when you work? Every boy is lazy. He has to learn how to get out of it. He has to watch his dad and godly Christians at church. He has to pray. He has to be humble. He has to say, I'm sorry, I was lazy. He's got to fight with it. He's got to get out there and sweat. He's got to fail over and over if he's ever going to conquer his laziness and be something other than a snowflake. Get out there and work, boys. Those are good lessons from Nehemiah chapter 4. But it is not the main message of this chapter. The great message of this chapter is that these Jews were working by the providential hand of God. And while they work by the providential hand of God, enemies came, not for the first time or the second time, but at least between Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, at least the third time, enemies came while they're doing the right thing. Remember the context. God can do what with the hearts of kings? can twist them and change them in a moment with the snap of a finger. With the blink of an eye, the king is completely changed. And he even made the kings not only change their previous laws, he made the kings pay. It takes a lot to make any king pay. They love their money. But these kings not only changed their law in public, So that all of their opponents said, ah, look at these kings. They're changing everything. Not only that, the kings paid. God can turn a king's heart like that. Why did he allow Sanballat and Tobiah? The answer to that question is the point of this passage. These people worked in the face of mockery hatred, threats on their lives. They worked long hours with dirty clothes at jobs they were not prepared to do. Their commitment could not have been shown in another way. There was no other way to show their commitment unless God allowed the enemies. And commitment is so valuable that God will even allow what he hates the most. God will permit it. God could have stopped The mockery, the hatred, the anti-Semitism, the death threats. God could have stopped all of that with what? A simple decision. The motion of God's mind would have stopped Sanballat and Tobiah. Can you imagine that? Think, if you can, into the mind of the divine being in heaven. And with a mere motion of his mind, all the enemies are stopped. They'll still build the wall 
They just don't have any. They'll still have the Jewish people. The seed of the woman will still come. Will God's plan be, be stopped? No. no. If God would have simply willed in his mind, let the enemies stop. They would stop. God didn't do that. Because with all of his heart, he despises anti-Semitism and mockery and death threats. But there's something he loves more than his hatred of sin. And that is true commitment from believers. And the only way to see commitment is by letting a world with cockroaches. That's it. You've got to have majenje. If there's no COVID, how do you get the chance to show I love Jesus more than I fear the government? God could have stopped COVID. He could have stopped a the bunch of Chinese and American scientists who decided to allow, who twisted this virus to allow this disease. He could have stopped that. Why did he allow COVID? So that you would have to choose. On, it's the Lord's day. All around the world, everyone living in the world knows on Sunday, Christians worship their God. What am I going to do? That's why he allowed it. You say, but, but people died and millions and billions of rands were lost and so much bad was done. Exactly. All of that bad was not as bad in God's eyes as the beauty and wonder and value of Christian commitment in the face of opposition. When these Jews had the chance to rebuild the wall, God says, enemies are essential and it's got to be a hard job. Why, as they were building the walls, or not why, but how many times do you think, while they were rebuilding the walls, do you think one of the men has said, hey man, Jeremiah, yeah, Hashaziah, ha Jeremiah, you ever think like, give me a brick, this whole wall's destroyed, like, when the Babylonians destroyed this place, like, why didn't just like, Break a little hole and come in and take the people out. Oh, man, you think too much. Here's a brick. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it. Like, look at this place. It's stones and rubble everywhere. Man, maybe take this one. Maybe, maybe he had this whole thing fall down. Man, it's hot. Man, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, is that the enemy? Hey, 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 security, security. The reason it was destroyed completely, the reason the enemy came, the reason they were tired, the reason it was a big job is because God was saying, I could bring my Messiah any way I want. There's women all around. There's Jewish women in Babylon. Esther's a Jewish woman. I could make Esther the mother of the Messiah. Just like that. I can do what I want. I'm having you people build this wall so that it would show you love me more than you love life. You love me more than you fear death. You love me more than you love anything else. 
And there are people in this room who have showed that commitment. Some of you come when you're so tired from work. And in your heart, you're thinking, I love the Lord Jesus. Exactly. Why didn't your schedule change? Why was your schedule like that for so long? Because the evidence of your commitment to the Lord Jesus was so valuable in his eyes. Why, why, why does, does that have to be so hard? The economy. Because when you fight and work and still love the Lord, even through difficulty, it shows that one's a sheep. That's the way my sheep are. And the danger in this world is this kind of Christianity that John Bunyan wrote about. And he put in the mouth of who? Talkative, maybe? I love religion when it walks in silver slippers and comfortable robes. I love religion when the sun is shining. That's what he said. Was it talkative? Bayens. Bayens. Bayens says, I love religion when it's very comfortable. But when the clouds come, when the rain When it's difficult and painful, like what happened to Faithful when he was persecuted at Vanity Fair, when that comes, oh, I don't think I'm up for religion then. Exactly. That's the way a goat talks. And God said years and years ago, before the world was formed, I desire a world that has hardships. Bucky's breaking down. There's a point at myself. Yeah, I think you've told me more than I've ever helped you. God has a world with bank problems. God has a world with William Carey in 18, was it 10 or 1812? When the fire burnt down all of his Bible manuscripts, he was translating the Bible and the fire burnt it down. Why? Because one worker left a candle on when he walked out at night. Then a window opened, candle fell over, it burnt up the manuscripts. A decade of work. But now all of us, all of us years later, look at William Carey and say, that's what faith is. That's what love is. That's what commitment is. And we've all forgotten all the hardships William Carey went through. But just a few years later, he had all of his money in a retirement fund in England. Not all of it, but he had been putting little bits of money in a retirement fund so that when he gets old, he can live on that money. He doesn't have to take his job anymore. The banks had a, a run and there was a depression. He lost all his money for retirement. It's going to happen. Just get ready. He lost it all. And he's in his late 60s. What am I supposed to do? Friends, I want to tell you, the whole point of the message is commitment is shown during difficulty. That's the point of the message. That's the point of the chapter. God brings difficulty. God allows difficulty. God will send it into your life. He's going to give you very hard things in ways you didn't expect. People and places and money and sicknesses you never expected. The weirdest, most... What kind of sickness is this? Pastor DeBrain has had in his family in New Covenant Baptist Church, he's had such unusual health problems. And you look and say, why? Nehemiah 4 is why. So that through all of that pain, they're able to say, 
God is enough. Psalm 73, 28. Though my flesh and my heart fail, you are the strength of my life and my portion forever. Though your schedule wastes away and your money goes down to nothing. Though your health is gone and your children are... Oh, it seems like everything is a problem. Are you still going to be committed? That's the message of Nehemiah 4. Father, we pray tonight that you would make us to have the commitment that we see in Nehemiah 4. We pray that you would give us this commitment. Make us men and women who have true saving faith. Make us men and women whose faith is like that of the apostles from 2 Peter 1 verse 1. A faith of equal value. We hear of William Carey, give us faith like that, that we might live our lives in the place where we're at with the faith of Hebrews eleven six that we heard preached about just this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.